I once served a congregation that included a set of young twin boys. They were playful, they were perceptive, and they were relentlessly intense. On some days, I would find them in the church lounge, coloring together on one large piece of paper with extraordinary cooperation, or reading the same book together on a lounge or on the couch in that lounge, sometimes even pausing as they read the book to put their free arms around one another as a tangible expression of brotherly love. Then there were other days when I would find them arguing or wrestling angrily over some dispute on the playground or screaming at one another, literally screaming at one another over who got to wear the Batman mask on the drive home. And one day I asked their mother what the relationship of the twins was like at home. And this was her response, fierce. She said, You've seen it, Eric. They're fierce in the way they love one another, and they're every bit as fierce in the way they fight with one another. This might sound strange, she said, but it's, as, it's almost as though each of their emotions toward the other is big enough for two people. Twins. Rebecca, who is the woman of faith we encounter in this morning's Old Testament scripture from the book of Genesis, had most likely come to the conclusion that motherhood was not going to be a reality for her. She was making plans for another trajectory in her life's journey. But then, in a mystery that defies biological analysis, Rebecca discovers that she is pregnant and pregnant not with one life, but two lives, twins. And scripture tells us that throughout her pregnancy, these twins struggle together inside her womb. In fact, the literal translation of the Hebrew is that the twins were crushing one another inside of the womb. That is the severity of the biological struggle that we're meant to understand about Rebecca's pregnancy. And the struggle becomes so profound that at one point, Rebecca cries out, if it's going to be this way, why do I live? If my pregnancy is going to cause this kind of physical distress, why, why am I alive? It is interesting, isn't it, that when we receive the thing that we think we most want, we often, at some point, wind up cursing it. As though pain, and blessing are joined together in a mystical way that makes them companions rather than enemies. If it's going to be this way, why do I live? Well, eventually, after an extraordinarily difficult pregnancy, Rebecca gives birth to the twins. The first twin she names Esau, and we're told in scripture that as Esau is making his way out of the womb, the other brother is grabbing at his heel. Now, friends, I am not a licensed family therapist. But if I had been present at that delivery, I might have been inclined to hazard a guess or a prediction 
that sibling rivalry was going to figure prominently in the future of these twins. I mean, my goodness, crushing one another inside the womb, grabbing at one another's heel on the way out of the womb. I don't have to be Dr. Spock or even Mr. Spock to understand where this relationship is headed. Uh, Philippa Gregory, the author Philippa Gregory, in her novel The Other Boleyn Girl, writes these words, underpinning the siblings' love for one another is the sense that the other had to be defeated. She was not describing Jacob and Esau, but in another sense she was describing Jacob and Esau. After naming the first twin Esau, Rebecca names the second twin Jacob, which comes from a Hebrew word that can be translated, the one who grabs by the heel. And then, at the heart of this morning's scripture, we're given a front row vantage point for an odd and troubling encounter between these two adult twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau comes back from one of his extended hunting trips, and we're told that he's famished, and it's a word that implies a near-death kind of hunger, simply because it had been many days since Esau had had anything to eat. And it just so happens that his twin brother, interesting detail, isn't it? His twin brother Jacob has just prepared a fresh batch of stew. And so Esau runs into the tent where the cooking is happening and screams out, hey, give me some of that red stuff that you're cooking. I love it, he doesn't even care what it is. Give me some of that red stuff you're cooking. I'm about to pass out with hunger. And instead of responding with compassion, Jacob looks upon his twin brother's hunger as an opportunity for what? Machiavellian advancement? Sure. Uh, sure, Esau, I'll give you something to eat. But first, I want you to sell me your birthright. Strange language and nomenclature for us, perhaps, but understand this, for a person of faith in the Old Testament, a birthright was nothing less than a sacred bequeathal worth dying for. No joke. A sacred bequeathal worth dying for. Offered to the firstborn son in a family, the birthright carried with it some important responsibilities and honors. The holder of the birthright, for example, was looked upon as the head of the family when the patriarch died, which, given the centrality of the family in the Jewish tradition, represented both patriarchal authority and familial honor. Not to be underestimated. But then the holder of the birthright, in practical terms, also received at least a double share of the inheritance. So, not surprisingly, there were economic privileges that accompanied the birthright. And in this family, Esau of the brothers was the holder of the birthright. Why? Because he was the firstborn son, not by much. Not by much, but he was the firstborn son and therefore the holder of the birthright. And Jacob says to him, the younger twin, sure, I'll give you something to eat, but first, I want you to sell me your birthright. 
And how does Esau respond to this? Well, heartbreakingly, without thinking very much about what he's doing, Esau responds with this, essentially. Who cares about a birthright? I'm hungry, and when you're hungry, you can't eat a birthright. So sure, absolutely, Jacob, take my birthright. Go ahead, just give me something to eat. And I think about a couple of things in those moments. I think about first Jacob's response and how often throughout history those with resources have been inclined to treat those resources as an entitlement to be exploited rather than a blessing to be shared. But then I also think about Esau's response and we are told specifically that with his response he despised his birthright, which is the Bible's way of telling us that Esau dishonored his sacred birthright by giving it away so cheaply, so easily, so effortlessly. He despised his birthright. End of story. Now what in the world are we to make of this strange little moment in Scripture? You might have some thoughts about that. But as I stand here, I find myself wondering if we're able to catch a glimpse in Esau's behavior of a, what I would describe, and see if you agree with this, what I would describe as a timeless human tendency to choose that which is cheap and immediate over that which is sacrificial and lasting. I mean, was Esau truly starving to death? Maybe he was. Was he truly starving to death so much so that he couldn't even take a moment to contemplate the ramification of the decision that he was making? Was he truly starving to death? Or is starvation in this moment of scripture representative of an outcry that human beings so frequently utilize to justify the passion of their various appetites? I'm not suggesting for a moment that Esau is a villain, but might he be the illuminator of a choice with which all of us, I would suspect, are intimately familiar. The choice of the immediate over the lasting, the choice of the appetite over the legacy, the choice of the bowl over the birthright. I've come to believe that this salvation that God offers to the world in Jesus Christ can be creatively described as a birthright of sorts, not in the sense of being owed to us or earned or possessed by us, but in the sense of being a sacred bequeathal offered by a lavishly generous parent to children who desperately need a spiritual inheritance. And if there's any truth in that, then this birthright that we find in Jesus, while freely offered in grace, is not cheap. It demands attentiveness, it demands vulnerability, it demands obedience in a sense, and certainly it demands an often countercultural commitment to the priorities that Jesus values. To put it as simply as I can put it, this 
salvation that God offers to us in Jesus, however it is that we define that, this salvation that God offers to us in Jesus demands of us a daily commitment to make a choice, specifically the choice of the birthright over the bowl. What does that look like in a daily life? Well, maybe it looks something like this. So early on Monday morning of this last week, and I normally attempt to take Mondays away from the rhythms of church life, but uh, early on Monday morning, I found myself caught up in the various social media platforms. And for some reason, early on Monday morning, I was focusing rather judgmentally, (laughs) truth be told, I was focusing rather judgmentally on those posts and tweets and comments that I found to be irresponsibly negative or disrespectful or dismissive or narcissistic. And from my vantage point, it sure seemed like there was a a disproportionately large number of those on Monday morning. Maybe it's just what was showing up in my newsfeed. And as I sat there focusing with a spirit of judgmentalism on some of these comments, I could sense welling up in my spirit all of these imagined, self-righteous, snarky responses that I would have loved to have made to some of those comments, some of those posts, some of those tweets. And of course, that began to generate within me what I would describe as a spirit of resentment, maybe even contempt for a number of people who had absolutely no idea whatsoever that they were upsetting me. And it was in that moment, as I sat in the darkness of the living room, looking at my computer screen, stewing in this resentment, that I began to hear with my spiritual ears this question forming in the depths of my soul. And the question that I began to hear forming was something like this. Hey, Eric, when was it? When was it that you began to choose the bull over the birthright? See, this was Monday morning, and on Sunday evening, the night before, I had spent some time reading the story of Jacob and Esau, which is my normal pattern to begin preparing for the next week's worship. And so the image of birthright, the image of bull, was fresh in my thoughts. And I don't know how you experience the Holy Spirit, but my experience of the Holy Spirit is one that will sometimes involve the Holy Spirit taking words of Scripture or taking words of my own thought for the purpose of generating questions in my spirit. And that was the question to which I was becoming more and more attentive on Monday morning as I sat in my resentment. Eric, when did you begin to choose the bull? It wasn't wasn't with harsh judgment. It was simply a question of clarity. When did you begin to choose the bull over the birthright? Eric, there was a time when you would treat it as a spiritual discipline to pray for people on social media, especially the people whose words were upsetting to you. You used to make that a spiritual discipline. Today you're resenting them? When did you begin to choose a heaping bowl of self-importance and self-righteousness over the birthright of compassionate, patient prayer? Now, I share that with you not to illustrate how fallen I am since 
No further evidence is necessary in that regard. But I do share it with you to illuminate how incredibly easy it is in momentary decisions to slip into the tendency to choose the immediate over the lasting, to choose the bowl over the birthright. And by the way, that choice between bowl and birthright is present not only in individual lives, it's also present, and you know this, in institutional systems. I mean, my goodness, we have entire Christian denominations currently that are doubling down on forbidding women to occupy the role of pastor, opting, and this is my language, opting for a bowl of biblical literalism over the better birthright of an outpoured spirit in which both sons and daughters shall prophesy. I once made a visit to a declining urban church whose architecture bore witness to its grand history, beautiful, large sanctuary. But the congregation, the numerically diminished congregation of that church now meets in a small basement downstairs because it's cheaper to heat and cool that space throughout the year. And it's a big enough space for the congregation. And that day, during my conversation with the senior pastor, he said something interesting. He said that he traces the beginning of the decline of that congregation back to the 1970s, when the leadership of that church made a very intentional choice to hunker down. That was the language that he used. To hunker down in familiar patterns of ministry instead of taking seriously a neighborhood that was changing generationally, racially, culturally, socioeconomically. I don't know how else to put it, the pastor said to me that day, but this congregation, much as I love it, much as I want to honor its history, but this congregation chose institutional maintenance over finding a way to bring the gospel creatively to a changing neighborhood. You see, in personal lives and in institutional systems and patterns, there's always a bowl and there is always a birthright. So today, on this summer Sunday, as, as you continue to hold this strange biblical moment, this encounter between Jacob and Esau in your contemplation, as you continue to reflect upon it, allow me to leave you with this challenge that I hope resonates for you. Here's the challenge. Be intentional about honoring your birthright because I believe that you have one in Jesus Christ. Whether you name it that way or not, I believe that you have a birthright that reflects who it is that God created you to be, what it means for you to be authentically human, authentically who you are in Christ. Honor that birthright. Honor it in specific ways. Honor it by worshiping and praying with a sense of urgency as though your life depended upon your prayer and your worship because in so many ways it does. Honor your birthright by blessing the people in your network of relationships with your kindness and your mercy and your faith and your hope and your love. But most of all, honor your spiritual birthright by offering to the world a life that looks increasingly like Jesus. A life that reflects his way, 
his often countercultural priorities. Honor your birthright that way, and I'll just tag this onto it. In whatever portion of your life you are stewarding, whatever this means for you, resist the temptation to settle for the stew. Because to be honest with you, I've tasted that stew and sometimes I've nearly choked on that stew. I suspect maybe some of you have as well. And if so, you know that I'm telling you the truth when I say to you, the birthright is always better than the stew. Amen.